four Sundays, we're going to be continuing through the book. And God willing, we will get to the end. Let's. By the way, do you know that it's Trinity Sunday today? Good. We believe in God who's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray. Father, we ask now this, this morning that as we come to your word, to this part of Ephesians, that you will be our teacher, we will learn from you and be changed as your Holy Spirit takes your word and works in our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 5. I realize this is a difficult passage, especially for women. And there may be some of you here this morning and you hear those words, submit, and husbands as head, as Christ is head of the church. And some of you have been hurt by those words in the past. Maybe you've been discouraged by them. Perhaps you've been confused by them. Those are difficult words, aren't they? The words submit in some contexts in our culture has that image of being overpowered by a superior power that overwhelms us and gives us no option but to submit. Some of you may have been and are angry when you hear those kinds of words. Others of you may have experienced in your own relationships or seen in the relationships of others these kinds of words of submission and head used to justify abuse within a marriage or a relationship. The figures for domestic violence, particularly against women in our culture, and I have to say too, it's present in churches. Those figures are deeply, deeply disturbing. And as I say, some of you may have experienced people using these kinds of ideas or words, or should I say misusing them, to justify the oppression of the woman in a relationship. Others amongst you here today may have decided to ignore these words. Paul's writing in a first century context, and so you've decided they don't apply to us anymore. What I want to do today is something I don't do very often. I want to go slowly and explain the context of this passage. I'm going to do what a mentor of mine used to call waggling on the T. I've used that expression before. I'm still not entirely sure what it means. 
partly because I have no idea what golf's about and even less idea why anyone should want to play it. But as I understand it, waggling on the tee is that moment of profound concentration where the golfer takes swings backwards and forwards, sometimes for a prolonged period of time and with intense concentration so that, I take it, the shot will be perfect. I want us to do some waggling on the tee. I'm going to, if you like, go behind the scenes and expose the structures because I want us to understand not only what Paul is saying here, but why he says what he says. The conviction of the Christian church has been and is that this is God's word to us. Or rather, it was written to them back then, and it is for us. And that's why I want us to handle it carefully, because I want us to understand that what Paul is talking about here has profound relevance for us. But as I say, it was written to them in the first century. And the past, as they say, is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And so I want us to look carefully at the background in the first century. We need to be very, very careful when we come to passages like this, written to them, but for us. Because the past is different in very significant ways. So what I want to do this week and next week is address three questions. Question one, why did Paul write about marriage at this point in the book of Ephesians? Why write about marriage? Why didn't he write about something else? The second question is, what's the meaning of the passage? And then the third question is, how does it apply? As I was preparing this, I was conscious that some of you like an early lunch. And so I'm going to address one of those questions this morning, and not three. And so, for those of you who are desperate for me to say what I think submit means, and the husband as head, and how that all works out, and some of you may be getting really quite frustrated, can I, can I just say, live calmly for a week? I am going to talk about those things, 
But next week, I want to set the context so that we can come to those things next week and by the grace of God, address them well. Why does Paul write about marriage at this point in Ephesians? Let's have a look at the context in Ephesians, in the letter, and then we'll have a look at the first century context. So we'll look at the context, first of all, in terms of the letter, what's been going on, how this fits into the context, and then we'll look at the first century context. You see, I, I don't often do it quite like this. Bear with me. Let's have a look at the context in Ephesians. So please would you turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul has been talking about the importance of wise living. If the church is to be the church, that is, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, if the church is to be a community of love, a community of forgiveness, and a community of purity, then the church needs to be characterized by wise living. Verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. The church is to be a community of wisdom. And to live wisely involves two things, according to Paul. Number one, understanding the Lord's will. Verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Paul's used that word, or that phrase, God's will, the Lord's will, more than once already in Ephesians. It is the Lord's will that we are adopted, that we are made God's children, in order that we might, as the body of Christ, be the church. That is, that we are to demonstrate the future unity where God will sum up everything in the entire creation, spiritual, material, in every kind of way, bring unity under Christ. And the church is to be a living, real, albeit partial, demonstration of that in the future. It is God's will that the church should be the church. And that means living out that new life, that oneness, in a way that touches every area of life. It's to characterize all our relationships. So living wisely requires that we understand the Lord's will. Otherwise, the danger is we will live, by contrast to living wisely, living foolishly. And he gives an example of foolish living in verse 18. Getting drunk. And that brings us to the second requirement for wise living. 
being filled with the Spirit. Verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. To live wisely means understanding the Lord's will and being filled with the Spirit. The two go together. And the results? Transformed worship. Verse 19. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing and making music from your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is transformed. It's not because the band is suddenly better. It's because the Holy Spirit is at work. And transformed worship, which results from a work of the Spirit, leads to transformed lives. As I said a couple of weeks ago, when we meet together and the Holy Spirit is at work and we are being filled by the Spirit and so praising God and encouraging each other as we sing to one another, you may come to church feeling disconsolate. You may come feeling depressed about the state of your life, discouraged, and there are times when meeting together can change us. The results of being filled with the Spirit, transformed worship, and secondly, transformed relationships. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another comes as a result of being filled by the Spirit. It is a demonstration of wise living. Now, it could be in verse 21 that Paul is looking backwards. In other words, he is talking about what's sometimes described as mutual submission. The kind of relationships that he's been talking about in chapters 4 and into chapter 5, where he talks about putting off certain kinds of behavior and putting on others, where there's radical forgiveness, where there are demonstrations of purity, where we are doing everything we possibly can, as he puts it at the beginning of chapter 4, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are, therefore, a community of love, a community of forgiveness, a community of purity. That requires a concern for each other, of putting another person's spiritual and moral welfare as the highest priority. And so it could be that Paul is describing, under that phrase, submitting to one another, what he's been talking about. In other words, he's talking about the importance of what we could describe as mutual submission, submitting to one another. He could mean that. Alternatively, it could be that submit to one another introduces the next group of relationships. So submit to one another could mean 
wives to husbands, and then he talks about children and parents and slaves and masters at the beginning of chapter 6. Some people say, for example, mutual submission doesn't make any sense. If A submits to B, how can B be submitting to A? My own sense is that Paul is moving from the general to the particular. That is, submit to one another does in fact, although in one sense it doesn't sound terribly logical, it's a radical way of describing the nature of the relationships he's just been talking about. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's about radical transformation of relationships. Putting off, putting on. And without that kind of attitude and that kind of behavior towards one another, we risk, as he puts it in chapter 4 and verse 30, grieving the Spirit. That's the general. He then moves from the general to the particular. Wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. And he says wives are to submit to their husbands. He changes the word in chapter 6 when he talks about children and slaves. He says children are to obey their parents and slaves are to obey their masters. Let me summarize where we've got to. The context is Paul's great concern that the church should be the church to demonstrate that supernatural future unity in the present. To demonstrate that the future has already broken in in the church, the body of Christ. And to do that means maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, which requires that we live wisely. And to live wisely involves understanding the Lord's will and being filled with the Spirit. That's the context that we've reached when we get to chapter 5, 22. What about the first century context? As I say, the past is a foreign country. We hear words like husband, wife, children, parents, and we think about our own experience, if we're married, of husband and wife or the experience of those we know who are married. We think, in other words, of modern marriage, 21st century Willoughby marriage. And we assume, I think, so often, that our experience and our understanding of marriage is normal. It's how marriage has always been, and certainly how it should be, at least if it's going half decently. But the past is a different place. In verse 22 and following, in this section that goes into chapter 5, 
Paul addresses some specific relationships. Husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. Question, why? Was it that Paul reached a point in the parchment and he thought, I've got some space. I know what I'll do. I'll write about marriage. And he writes about marriage and he still has a bit left. So he thinks, marriage... Well, that flows on to children and parents. I'll write about children and parents. Still got some space. What should I put in next? I know, slaves and masters. The answer to the question why is that these relationships, wife, husband, children, parents, Slaves, masters, are the key relationships, the most important relationships in what we call the first century household, about which I'll say more in just a moment. These are the key relationships in the household. And he addresses husbands and wives because their relationship would be vitally important in determining how all the other relationships in the household went. In other words, Paul is not writing about marriage in isolation. This is not a treatise on marriage. It's about the household. He's not writing about marriage as a standalone, but as part of an address to Christian households and how they should function. And that means it's really, really important for us to recognize that Ephesians 5 doesn't contain all that's to be said about marriage. By any means. The Bible, including the New Testament, has a lot more to say about marriage and about women in general. If you want to look at some of the other things that the Bible has to say about marriage, I would say read Song of Songs. That will tell you all kinds of very different things. Additional things. Other things about marriage. I would like you to turn to one passage in particular. So if you keep a hand in Ephesians 5, because we're going to come back to it. Uh, but if you turn to page 660, page 660 is the book of Proverbs. It's right at the end of the book of Proverbs. It's Proverbs 31 and verse 10. It's about wives. It's about a particular example of a wife being a wife. We're going to read it. Please follow. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good not harm all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. 
She gets up while it's still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and a lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom. And faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. We could spend a, an entire morning looking at that, couldn't we? Let me simply say, point out, this woman is a wife. She's a mother. Proverbs 31 highlights how hard it can be to be a mother and a wife. But she's an entrepreneur. She's a manager. She's an organizer. She is an instructor, a teacher. And yes, her husband is blessed as he goes about his civic duties, Old Testament context, he's at the city gate with the elders. Well, notice that she too is praised there. This is scarcely a submissive wife, is it? Who has to submit all her decisions to her husband before she can make any decision. Ephesians 5 does not say all there is to be said about marriage. Paul is addressing the husband and wife relationship in Ephesians 5 because he's concerned about the household and how the household goes. I'll come back to that. Let me say something briefly about marriage in the first century. Remember, the past is a different place. Of course, there are similarities. But there are some very profound differences. And Ephesians is written to them. And then for us. Paul does not have in mind a 21st century Willoughby family and marriage. He's talking in a first century context. 
And in the first century in the Roman Empire, there are some significant differences. Marriage was largely patriarchal. That is, the husband was in a power position. He was the head of the household, including his wife, with the responsibility for ensuring the harmony, honor, and security of the household. The average age for women is, uh, for marriage has been estimated for women was between 12 and 14. The average age of marriage for men was between 20 and 25. There was a high mortality rate in childbirth. And the average life expectancy of women was around 35. It was 45 for men. Now you imagine that. It was quite common for a young woman to be married to an older man who had had a wife before who had died in childbirth but who had other children. So, you see, already we're talking about a complex social structure within marriage and the household. That's the context, the marriage context, that Paul is writing to. And yes, he's calling on husbands and wives to live out their marriages in that contact text. He does not call for the overthrow of first century marriage. They are to live it out in that context. However, as we'll see next week, what he goes on to say about the relationship between wives and husbands, and in particular what he says to husbands, husbands, please do come back next week, is deeply countercultural, and it still is. That's something about marriage. Last thing about the first century context. I want to say something about the household. When we come to a passage like this, I think so often, as I say, when it comes to marriage, husband and wife, we kind of think of our kind of experience of husband and wife. And when we come to a passage like this, which talks about husband and wife and then children and parents, we think, yeah, yeah, I can, I can kind of relate to that. Although he does say about fathers in particular, and we're not, some of us, quite sure what to do about that, and then when he gets to slaves and masters, we kind of fudge it. And we say, well, that's about work. And what we do so often is to treat this as if this is about a 21st century family. It isn't. The first century household is vastly different from our families husband, wife, or mother and children, father and children. It is hugely different. It was a social and an economic grouping. There were all kinds of relationships, husbands and wives, children, sometimes other generations, 
children from previous marriages, extended families of one kind or of another, slaves, and sometimes their families as well. It was a very different setup from our family grouping. The household was different. And the household was where you got your identity. Think about us. The way we think usually goes something like this. We start with ourselves, the individual. We're a very individualistic society. So I begin with who I am. I. And who I want to be and what I'm becoming. And then we have our private life, which perhaps has family at the center of that and then friends and other relationships and gradually merges out. But that's my private life. And then there's my public life, which might be work. And we try to keep those two apart. There's some fluidity between them. And there are some things where some of us are not quite sure where to put it. Where does church go? Is it private or public? Well, that's how we tend to think. In the first century, it's completely different. There is no sense of the individual in the way that we think about it. The individual was part of the domestic sphere, that is, the household, and the household gave you your identity. If you belong to a high-status, highly honored household, that raised your standing in the community. Even if you were a slave, I am a slave of which makes me more honorable, more to be respected than you because you're a slave of a much lesser family. And then you're defined by your relationships within the household, mother or husband or wife, parents and children, masters and slaves. That was the domestic sphere. And then there's the civic, the city sphere. That's how people thought in the first century. That notion that we have a private and public doesn't work in anything like the same way in the first century. Now back to the text. I'm almost done. Next week, get to the really exciting things. Please just bear with me. Paul is addressing Christian households in Ephesus. He's addressing Christian households because the church is made up of household churches. They would meet in people's homes. They didn't have special buildings called church. And you might have two three, sometimes more, households meeting together. And what does Paul want the church to be? Well, to demonstrate the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So imagine 
you have three households meeting together. And imagine that the relationship between husbands and wives is deeply dysfunctional in one of those households. And in fact, the whole of that household has really messed up relationships. That will impact the church. The reason, in other words, he's talking about two households is because how the household goes is how the church will go. That's what this is about. That's the context. And he writes about the relationship between husbands and wives because their relationship in particular will determine how the other relationships in the household go. Do you see? The context is really, really important. And there's one last thing about the husband and wife relationship. As Paul will go on to say, as we'll see next week, the husband and wife relationship is meant to demonstrate that bigger story of the relationship between Jesus and the church. Can you imagine what it would mean in the life of a household if the relationship, husband and wife, the master and the mistress of the household, are seeking to live out in their marriage the relationship between Christ and the church? Can you imagine the impact that would have on the other marriages in the family? and the household, in the relationships between them, and therefore the impact it would have on the church. Husbands and wives are called to demonstrate the relationship between Christ and the church to their households for the sake of the church. Now, as I said this morning, I was just looking at one question. This is all about background. Next week, we'll go to the really exciting things, so please live well, carefully, this week. Don't do anything dangerous. Don't go bungee jumping. <laughs> Let me summarize what we've got. Paul's desire in Ephesians is that the church should be the church. That is, demonstrating the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Demonstrating radically changed relationships. That the church should be a community of love, a community of radical forgiveness, and a community of purity. If the church is to be that kind of community then relationships in the household are critically important because where the households go is where the church will go. Households will either bless the church, encourage more and more maturity, greater demonstrations of love and forgiveness and purity, or they will be a destructive influence in the church. How the household goes 
is how the church will go. And that's why Paul is writing to the households. What does that look like in marriage? I'm going to talk about marriage next week. I'm not going to talk about parents and slaves. We'll come to that later. What does this look like and how does it apply to us? Live well. Come back next week. Let's pray. Father, please help us to handle your word well so that we might live wisely, be increasingly the people that you call us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.